Hey, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the Bible in the pew uh, is available, and we're going to be on page 877. You guys, I've been trying to stop talking about politics, but Jesus just won't let me. <laughs> uh, um, but I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a little boy. Uh, he's about 10 years old. He lives in a small town with his mom and dad, his brothers and sisters. And what happens to this little boy is pretty tragic. He is just growing up in an environment when a, another nation that lives across the sea decides that they are going to conquer his homeland. And they show up, they show up with their armies, they show up with their soldiers, they show up with their technology of war, and they subjugate his people. And one of the things that they do is they require every man, woman, and child in his country to pay a tax to their government, a tax that specifically goes to help the effort of their oppression of their people. But there's one man, uh, this man lives a couple towns over from the little boy, and he doesn't think this is okay, and he starts gathering people together, formulating a rebellion. It is not right to be subjugated like this. It is not right to be forced to pay this tax. And so he gathers his people together, and with all the weapons they can find, they attack the oppressors with everything that they have. And they have a righteous cause. They believe that God is on their side. But they fail. The, the invading army is just overwhelming in its force and its power and its capability. And they are captured. And the men are killed. And the rebellion is put down. This little boy's name is Jesus. Now, did I make that up? Just a little bit. But Judas the Galilean is a man who in 6 AD, when Jesus was about 10 years old, started a rebellion a few towns over in Galilee from where Jesus grew up. And he said, this tax that the Roman government is making us pay, this poll tax, this, this requirement of every man, woman, and child to fund the Roman occupation of Galilee is unjust. And our God, Yahweh, demands that we stand up against this oppression. And Jesus would have known about this. It would have been the talk of his town in Nazareth. And it was a big deal. The Romans came in and they crushed the rebellion and they crucified the rebels in a statement of their amazing power. But this idea that the oppression of Rome and specifically the tax that's being levied on the people to fund the Roman government, that tension, that never goes away. Jesus grows up in this world where this is still a live question for debate. 
How do we, as God's people, function in the world where we're being oppressed by the Roman government? Fast forward, Jesus is in his early 30s, and he is in Jerusalem for the Passover. He's been here for a few days, the last few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, and this is going to be his last week of his earthly ministry. At the end of this week, he is going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified by the Romans, and on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. And Jesus has been... Speaking in parables, he's been telling stories about how the religious leaders in Jerusalem have failed in their duty to lead the people well. They have failed to lead the people in a way that honors God, and they are being removed. And this, of course, upsets the religious leaders. They don't like this. And so they're going to come at Jesus with a series of three questions. We're going to take a look at the first question they asked today, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at a couple other questions. Because they need to get rid of Jesus. Look at verse 15 of chapter 22 of the Gospel of Matthew. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. The Pharisees need to trap Jesus. They need to remove him. He is a threat to their authority. He is a threat to their power. He is actively speaking against them. Just a couple days ago, he turned over the tables in the temple which messes up their economic hold on the area, he needs to be gotten rid of. And they bring the Herodians along. The Herodians, they're a political party of underlings for King Herod. King Herod, he doesn't rule in Jerusalem. He rules over in Galilee where Jesus is from. But he's kind of, he kind of wants to pretend to be a good Jew so that the Jewish people don't revolt against him. So he's there for Passover, and he's brought all of his lackeys with him, and they get together with the Pharisees, and they're going to question Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians don't get along. They're political enemies, but they have decided they're going to band together to defeat a common enemy, and they flatter Jesus. I mean, even just reading it. We know you are truthful and teach truthfully. You don't care what anyone thinks. You don't show partiality. They are flattering him. Everything they say is true, by the way, but they don't believe it. And then they lay the trap. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Lawful, does this, according to God's law, does, does Yahweh allow us to do this thing? Is it okay with God that we pay taxes to Caesar? And again, this, the, the English translation here kind of uh, doesn't make it super clear. This is the poll tax that I just talked about, that Judas rose up in 6 AD to fight against. And this has been a political problem for the Jewish people for 30, 20, 30 years now. Is it okay with God to pay that tax? Are you breaking God's law if you pay your tax to Caesar? 
this incredibly contentious issue is something that there, Jesus isn't going to find an easy answer to. It's like asking a politician, do you believe women have a, r- a right to decide what to do with their own bodies? It's a loaded question, right? No matter how you answer that question, you're going to make somebody mad. If Jesus says, yes, you need to pay the poll tax, then he loses support from all the people. The people think he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the leader who's coming to kick out Rome and start a new glorious golden age. Pay taxes to Caesar? I thought you were the king. But if he says, pay your taxes, well, then he's going to be accused of starting an uprising against Rome. So what does Jesus do? Verse 18, perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? So the word hypocrite, that's a bad word in our world, right? You call somebody a hypocrite, you're putting them down. But in Jesus' world, the word hypocrite was kind of a neutral term. If you were an actor, if that's what you did for a living, you would be called a hypocrite. You're just somebody that's playing a part. And it's because of the way Jesus uses the word that we have come to believe that a hypocrite is a bad thing because that's the way Jesus uses the word. You guys are pretenders. You're acting out a part. You're not sincere. Why does he call him that? Verse 19 says, Jesus says, show me the coin used for the tax. And this is great. Because it's easy to think, well, Jesus is poor, right? He, he doesn't have the coin because he's poor. And that's probably true. But more than that, he's calling the religious leaders out. I don't have the coin. Do you have one? He has to get the coin from the Pharisees. If, if the Pharisees are so concerned about paying the tax, why are they using the coins? Because, see, the specific coin that was used to pay the tax was Caesar's coin. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But if you're against paying the tax, you wouldn't be carrying around Caesar's dirty money with you. You hypocrites. Show me the coin. Just by offering the coin to Jesus, they're admitting that they're willing to use the unclean money of the occupying army in order to gain influence and do business for their own selfish ends. So they brought him a denarius, an official Roman coin. And Jesus says in verse 20, whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Jesus is getting to the heart of this problem. The image on the coin would have been the face of Tiberius, the Caesar. And God's law in the book of Exodus says that you are not supposed to make images. The Jewish people had a real problem with using coinage that had somebody's image on it. It was breaking the law. And whose inscription is it? What's the inscription on the coin? Well, if you take Caesar's face and you flip it over to the back, it says, son of the divine, high priest of Rome. So the Jews are freaking out about this. Caesar's not the son of God. He's not our priest. See, the coinage is 
It's political propaganda. It's like if uh, in 2016, our president signed an executive order to put his face on all the money and, on the, and you turn over the $20 bill and it says, make America great again. Some of us would love that. Others of us would quit using cash because we're so upset about that. That's the point. Tiberius wants his face. He wants his image on everyone's currency. He wants to remind them day by day by day that he is the king. This was so problematic that the Jews actually gave the, or the Romans actually gave the Jews an exception. You have to pay the tax, but you can print your own money to do it. The Jewish people had their own currency that was legal tender in the Roman Empire to pay the tax with because they were so upset about the face and the inscription of Tiberius. And yet still, the Pharisees have the coin. They have the money that they're trying to trap Jesus with. And it's a good trap, right? The Pharisees are smart. They've, they've got Jesus between a rock and a hard place. What's he going to say? How's he going to get out of this one? Jesus is smarter than the Pharisees. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them, verse 21, Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. So Jesus, Jesus deflects, right? He doesn't answer the question. He pushes it back on them. He says, you guys are the ones with the coin. You go give that back to Caesar. It's his. See, Caesar wants to be worshipped. He wants to be the son of the divine. He wants to be the high priest. And the Jewish people, they know that. That's why they're so upset about it. They don't want to give him that honor, that worship. But Jesus says, pay the tax, but don't worship Caesar. Respect the state, but give your allegiance to God. This thing that belongs to Caesar, just give it back to Caesar. But the thing that belongs to God, you give that back to God. And this short little story illustrates something that I think is really, really important right now for us. We live in a culture where we are always given two options, Democrat, Republican, wear a mask, refuse to wear a mask, black lives matter, no, blue lives matter, pick one, worship Caesar or rebel against Caesar. And Jesus, he refuses to be limited by those two options. He, he will not fit into that bucket. Jesus says, pay the tax, but don't worship the emperor. He can separate those two issues. I have a, a group of guys that I, I meet with in Portland and every month, and we have like a private little Facebook group that we talk to each other in and we're always talking about whatever's going on, and I, 
for some reason, I, I, I seem to use the word nuance in my posts a lot, and one of my classmates called me out on it a couple weeks ago. He says, that's a stupid word. I hate that word. Quit using nuance. <laughs> but but that's, that's the problem, right? We, we, we've lost nuance. We don't have any ability to see through the two options, to, to wade into the gray area. And, and Social media is terrible for this, right? Like, social media just throws at us, do you, do, are you this or are you that? And you have like 140 characters to explain why, right? We don't want to think. We don't want to analyze. We don't want to research. We just want to, to pick a side. And that's not what Jesus is not going to do that. He's not going to let the Pharisees make him pick a side. He says, pay your taxes. Well, is it a just law? No. The Romans are an occupying army. They're destroying our culture and our civilization. And we pray to God that they would be removed so we could be free. Just, but just pay your taxes anyway. Jesus says, follow the law, even if you think the law is wrong or stupid. And this is hard. Right? I was, I was having lunch with a, a friend of mine downtown, and it was right after our local mask mandate came out, and we were talking about, he's a pastor in Missoula, and they've got similar things going on, and talking about it, and, and yeah, and I, I don't know, I'm just trying to, I don't, I don't know what the science says anymore, I don't know who to trust, I'm just trying to do what the law says I'm supposed to do and wear a mask when I'm, you know, in these situations and stuff, and we're walking around downtown, and we were actually trying to get to Spencer's coffee shop. And we were down on uh, 3rd and Lakeside, and the light wouldn't, the, the walk sign wouldn't change. It went through like two cycles, and it just wouldn't change. And I finally just went, come on, let's go. And he goes, so you'll wear a mask, but you'll jaywalk? <laughs> yeah, shoot, that's, that's not right. If I'm going to follow the law, I need to follow the law. It's hard. Jesus, Jesus says, yeah, this is, this is a bad law. I, I, I'm, I'm your king. I'm here to rescue you from oppression, but give the things that are Caesar's to Caesar. And give the things that are God's to God. So then that, that begs the question, well, what about, aren't there times that we're supposed to break the law? Aren't there times that we should rebel against the government? And, and I think that's, that's absolutely right. There are. Jesus be, seems to be giving us pretty wide latitude here. Like he's, he, the Roman occupation is a pretty big deal, and he's still saying like, well, let's just settle down. But turn with me if you'd like to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4 talks about Peter and John, Jesus' uh, early disciples, apostles, friends, after Jesus has risen from the dead and uh, inaugurated his kingdom through the church, they go around Jerusalem telling everybody that they know that Jesus loves them. And the religious leaders, the same ones that are about to crucify Christ, they arrest Peter and John and say, you need to stop talking about Jesus. And in verse 19 of chapter 4, 
Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they say, look, I, I appreciate your position, but we've been asked by God to share this message with everyone we know. And we can't do anything else. And if you flip over to chapter 5, they get arrested again. <laughs> and in verse 27, after they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And again, they, they repeat, like, we, we have to do what God has asked us to do. But then jump down to verse 40. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, beaten severely, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So, they're willing to break the law because God clearly says, this is what I want you to do, but they're also willing to accept the consequences. And some of them, many of them, were actually killed for following Christ this way. But then a few years later, Peter, this, this man who stands up to the religious leaders and says, we, we're going to do what God says, he writes a letter. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. So this man who stands up boldly and says, this is what God wants me to do and I can do no other who willingly submits to being beaten for standing up for Christ, at the same time says, hey, you know what? We need to honor 
authority. We need to go out of our way to do good in our culture. Why? It's God's will that we silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. I love that. I love that it's our goal, it should be our goal to prove how good God is by just living lives that are virtuous. Verse 16 of 1 Peter 2 says, submit as free people. We are free, and we can use our freedom not to do evil, but to do good. So then I want to read you one other thing. This is a few years later, in the second century. Christianity has begun to spread around the Roman Empire like wildfire, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are becoming Christians. And it's a problem, because remember, the emperor, he wants to be worshipped. He wants to be called the son of God and the high priest. And the Christians, they won't do it. And this, this governor named Pliny, he writes a letter to the emperor and says, I'm having some problems with the Christians and I need some advice. And, and this is what he says. He says, Christians, they get together and they bind themselves not to some crime like he expects that the Christians will get together and like do mischief. No, he says they don't bind themselves to some crime, but not to commit fraud or theft or adultery or falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. They get together and they promise to be good citizens. And when it's over, it's their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food. But ordinary and innocent food. They don't, they don't like eat weird food. It's just food. This is what the Christians are doing. They're getting together in secret and they won't worship the emperor. And they're promising each other that they will be good citizens. And he's like, help me. I don't know what to do. And then he says... Even this, their gathering, they affirmed they had ceased to do after my edict by which in accordance with your instructions I had forbidden political associations. See, to the Roman Empire, the Christian church was a political entity. It was a, a group of people gathered together with the express mission to change the world. We see that in Acts. Paul is accused of turning the world upside down because the statement, Jesus is Lord, means that Caesar is not. They're revolutionaries. And Pliny says, I told them they couldn't gather. We're having a little bit of that right now. And Pliny says, and they did. They stopped gathering to get together to promise to be good citizens and eat normal food. And then he goes on to say, and then I, I like kidnapped two of the deaconesses and I tortured them and it gets weird. But, but Pliny's whole thing is these people are great. They're living their lives in a way to bless the society that they're a part of. But they won't worship Caesar. The Christians are excellent citizens, but terrible worshipers. And this is exactly going back to Matthew 22, what Jesus is saying. Pay your taxes, but give what belongs to God to God. So how do we do this? There's a pastor I follow on Twitter this week, and he, he was saying some similar things about 
how we should view the political landscape. And he was being accused of uh, just being holier than thou and, and above the fray and, and unwilling to get his hands dirty in the business of the world. And, and he said, are Christians above the fray? Kind of, yeah. We kind of are. Listen to Paul, the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 1, verse 9. We are asking, he's talking about prayer, we are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have the great endurance and patience joyfully, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Listen to this. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What Paul says is, you and I, Christian, we are not part of this kingdom. We're not part of this world. We have been rescued out from everything that's going on and placed in a completely new kingdom. We have a different identity. We are different people. And Jesus says, hey, give the coin that belongs to Caesar back to Caesar. It doesn't belong to you anyway. It's part of the kingdom of the world. But give the thing that belongs to God to God. And that begs the question, what belongs to God? Caesar's coin belongs to Caesar. Why? Because it has his image on it. The image of Caesar, the reminder of who Caesar is. Caesar sends his coins throughout the empire to make sure everybody knows I'm in charge. So where has God placed his image? Everyone in this room that has bowed their knee to Jesus, every human being on this planet has been made in the image of God. This is why the, the Jewish people have such a problem with idolatry. You don't, God says in his, his law, you don't make an image of God. You don't make a picture that looks like me because I already did that. I made you. Men and women are the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God created us in his image. And he said, I want you to go around my kingdom and be a reminder to everyone of who I am. And so you and I the image bearers of God, we are called to give ourselves everything that we have back to him in service, to love him, to love others, to seek justice, to seek mercy, to walk in humility. And we as, a, as Christians, we have a duty not to succumb to the tribalism that we see that accepts an either or reality. Are you in this camp or that camp? When one camp abuses the image of God in people in this way and the other camp abuses the image of God in people the other way, we have to stand against both of those things and say, we have a third way. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We view the world differently. 
We can't blindly sign on to anything that abuses the image of God in us or allows us to abuse the image of God in people that we disagree with. So as Christians, we can be people that call to reform and support the police. We can love our neighbors by wearing a mask and believe that our government is corrupt and manipulative. We can value American culture and open our arms wide to immigrants. We can have serious disagreements with the president and pray for his quick recovery from COVID. And there's tension in that. It's hard. Jesus never said it was easy, right? The the leaders of, of Israel walk away from this discussion amazed, but they're not amazed that Jesus has answered their question the way they thought he would, but that he didn't answer their question and at the same time didn't allow him to be trapped and at the same time elevated the worship of Yahweh. It's hard. But believing the gospel, saying my allegiance is to Christ, my salvation is from Christ, I have been redeemed, pardoned, my sins have been washed away by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I owe my allegiance and my life to Him, believing the gospel means you have different allegiances and different priorities. And especially in this time that gets crazier and crazier every day, we need to be people that are sure of our citizenship in a different kingdom. And we can engage with politics, we can engage with culture, but we have to be people that in some sense can stand above it and say, ultimately, I don't owe my allegiance to what's going on down here. I owe my allegiance to King Jesus. So we're going to take communion like we always do. Jesus said, as often as you do this, remember me. Jesus is on his way to the cross in our study of Matthew, and he is going to be arrested, unjustly tried, brutally beaten, and murdered as a criminal at the request of the Jewish leadership by the Roman government. Not for anything he's done, but because he is on a mission to save us from sin and conquer death by walking into the jaws of death and allowing it to take him. But death will not be able to hold him. On the third day, he will rise from the dead, giving new life to everyone that says, I want to follow you. I want to be yours. And we have an opportunity every week to remember who he is and what he's done for us and how we are citizens, Christian, of his kingdom. He is our king. I often talk about communion as, as, as the Christian Pledge of Allegiance. It's a weekly opportunity to once again say, yes, Jesus, I am yours. I follow you. I belong to you. My life is found in your life. I am nourished by you. And so there's just one more opportunity as the band comes back up and as we sing to take the communion, take it back to your seat, 
Ask God the question, if I am your image, am I giving that back to you? Am I living my life as your currency, as your symbol of empire? Am I, am I part of the coinage that goes around this empire saying, hey, there's a different king. Caesar's not our king. Jesus is our king. How am I living that life? How am I giving that back to him? Feel free to spend some time in prayer in your seats. Feel free to use the rugs down here if you'd like to change the position of the posture of your body. Sometimes that's helpful when we pray. And we'll sing together and remember our King, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.